This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. He is the co-host of Men and Blazers, and he is now a best-selling author. He's also a huge White Sox fan. His book, Reborn in the USA, is just out and a smash hit. He is Roger Bennett. Hi, Raj. Oh, Chen, slight the White Sox. I'm number one. <laughs> so we've got the first place White Sox on our hands as we're sitting here talking. Uh, for people who don't know, how does a Liverpudlian become a White Sox fan wearing a Waffle House sweatshirt as we talk <laughs> and a White Sox hat? Well, I am a son of the great city of Liverpool. Uh, but the reality is, the myth of my family is that you can see over my shoulder, my great-grandfather, Harris, here he is. Oh, he left the Ukraine in the turn of the century, 19th and early 1900s, um, and was a butcher. Where would he want to travel to? Like millions headed to America. He, of course, would want to go to Chicago, the hog capital of the world. And the myth of our family is that the boat doctor refueled in Liverpool he saw the one tall building on the Liverpool skyline, thought he was in New York City and got off the boat at the wrong stop. And so we were left to be butchers in the northwest of England, kosher butchers too, in the northwest of England. Not a great business as opposed to Chicago, where like in our family's imagination, we would have been oh, living the, the, the promised life like in the jazz singer. And so Liverpool in the 1980s, it's a great city. It's a remarkable city, not unlike Chicago. It's a city that adores its own history, revels in its own traditions, full of storytellers, big dreamers. Uh, but it was in a very bad place in the 1980s. The north of England had really fallen apart. Industrially, the coal mines, the steel mills, the cotton mills shut down. And life was really tough in Liverpool. Unemployment rates soared. There was a heroin epidemic. And, you know, I took this family story to heart. And I made survive, really, by telling myself I was an American trapped in a Liverpudlian's body, that I was meant to be there. And I feasted upon, and this is what the book's about, about what it's like to build an American identity without ever having set foot. In America, I, I, I watched every television show, movie, listened to every band, you know, started to follow the Chicago Bears, built this imaginary American world built in color. And my grandfather, when he, you know, when life was tough, I was very close with him. He'd pull down this Statue of Liberty, this green tchotchke off his fireplace, and he'd look at it with me and he'd be like, we should have been there. We should have been there. We're meant to be in Chicago. So I've always felt that's my destiny to be to be Chicagoan, and that's ultimately what I secured with my in my life moving that. So this all started with the Bears, though, right? I love the story in your book of you dialing random three one two numbers and engaging <laughs> people in conversation to get the Bears down in distance, Raj. Jason, how else were we going to do it? How else would you do it? This is the pre-internet age, young listeners. There was a time where there was no internet. 
And the NFL crashed onto our shores in 1982. It was an hour-long show of highlights, 14 games a season then. And they crushed the 14 games into an hour highlight package. But it was already, you already knew the games were played a week earlier. But in the internet area, pre-internet area, you couldn't find out what the heck had happened. And the Bears, who obviously, thinking I was a Chicago and I fell in love with the Bears and it was great timing because after wasting Walter Payton's, the majority of his incredible career, they finally, almost by mistake, got it right and put together a swashbuckling collective who feared nobody, trash-talked, uh, to glory, you know, they talked trash before the game, then backed it up during the game, and then laughed afterwards. They were phenomenal. And again, watching as a kid, I was like, Oh my god, you can rewrite your own history, you do not have to be what you are, losers. You can transform yourself and become a swaggering buccaneering winner. And I started to I'd follow along, and I knew the games they were undefeated game after game during that incredible season. I couldn't wait any longer to find out what did they do this week. So with my best friend, Jamie, in his house, please note, not my house, because my dad would have murdered me with the phone bill. We used to, during game time, we knew it was Sunday afternoon in Chicago. We would just dial random 312 numbers. My God, just the thrill of hearing the American dial tone like we'd heard on movies and television shows was just like, oh, my God, it's ringing. <laughs> and then someone would answer, hello? And we'd be like, hello, how are the Bears doing? And God love Americans because instead of being like, who are you? Or what the hell are you doing? Or why are you calling? They patiently often for up to 45 minutes would give us a our own personal play-by-play. They'd be like, Jim McMahon's dropped back into the pocket. He looks left. He fires right. He finds Willie Galt over the middle. Willie Galt's broken. He's to the 20, to the... And, and we would just like, we would follow along avidly this audience of just the two of us. And that is how I so deeply and, and remarkably just committed and connected to, to the greatest football team ever to take the field. So, so how did, how did there, oh, there's a picture of young Raj celebrating the oh, bears. Are we videoing this? I've been, I've God, I, I didn't put on my best outfit for you, Benetti. <laughs> no, I love, I love it. I love, you have enough, pi- you have enough pictures in that book that you can't say, are we videoing this? <laughs> there are some pretty nerdy pictures in that book. That's, oh, that, I mean, what else could there be? I was just a lost, uh, confused, lacking in confidence gentlemen um and the bears provided every little ounce of reinforcement that you could need that team was just for i loved all of them i loved i, I even loved the punter maury buford with his curly hair he was like so called kevin butler the kicker who i actually got to meet he came down to one of our shows i've got a football uh, signed by the the bears super bowl team that kevin butler gave me and it, it was just a genuine i just remember him as just a swaggering i mean really he was like a he was like a punk rock singer meets field goal kicker. He was intensely remarkable. Um, I, I, I'm, all of them, I just adored Matt Suey, the fullback, uh, who I actually met uh, when it once had moved there. Just a joyous, remarkable, deeply intelligent human being. I mean, I loved the, each and every one of them. Obviously, William Refrigerator Perry hung over my bedroom wall. I had, as a kid, soccer was everything, football, and I had, you know, Everton. Um, pictures all over my bedroom wall, but slowly 
as my love affair with America took over, I took one down, one poster down, replaced it with, you know, a Willie Gold poster, took another one down, replaced it with a Michael Jordan poster that someone had sent me. I took another, and, and slowly my whole bedroom became a shrine to America, but it was William Refrigerator Perry who hung over my bed and I had on my on my wall painted the Manhattan skyline, a very terrible painting of the Manhattan skyline and the Statue of Liberty, uh, where the painter forgot that she had an arm and then kind of just jammed it in awkwardly. But huh. I, I used to, I used to look at it uh, at night. And so the last things I'd see every night before I go to bed were the fridge's face smiling. He was leaning against a fridge. A lot of your Chicago listeners will have had the same poster leaning against a fridge and it was falling over. And I'd always, the last thing I'd see would be Lady Liberty's face. And I would dream of a life that could be lived like they lived it, which was fun, friendship, joy, and mostly redefining who they were. That's why they were so important. They've been losers. Pathetic. That's my dog, Hibbo. They've been losers for 20 years. They frittered away the career of the one of the greatest men to ever play the game. Definitely the greatest man to ever pull on their jersey. And to watch them look at their own fate, their own self-sabotage, their own trauma, their own their own dreams and broken dream cycle was was incredibly profoundly validating as a kid. So so how did a misguided disembarkment in Liverpool from a Ukrainian uh, outpost to Walter Payton and Refrigerator Perry become eventually this honestly lovely white Sox fandom that you hold so deeply in your heart so i've written a book about that jason benetti it's called reborn in the usa because it is it's hilarious to me that all of this has happened like lots of i've learned while releasing this book that is a very common my book is very specific to me this crazy dreaming this fever dream these these totems of americanness uh, that seem on the surface flip. Like I used to watch Miami Vice, Don Johnson, um, and I would just like it's when I say he was just an incredible hero. It sounds ridiculous, but I needed to know. Like when I watched that, when that kicked onto the television, that drum rattle at the beginning, like gunshot, and you'd sit back and you just that opening montage. It was just like cool buildings, palm trees, bikini buttocks. Uh, 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 the horse is running more bikini buttocks and you'd be like what is this life you know I was like beaches were freezing cold miserable there were always chemical sea lapping against them and dead sheep bouncing up and down I was like what is, there's happiness there's people smiling what is, people seem to be enjoying themselves over there and Don Johnson um, you know I said right in the book like I was like mum what is that color he's wearing she'd be like I don't know. I've never seen it before. We found out it's teal. Teal had not even been invented in England yet. We were like, whoa, why is that thing? And you would watch Don Johnson as a 15-year-old, and you'd just be like, oh, my God. Um, I am lost, and I don't know how to be in the world. But this guy showed me. It was like Don, and Miami Vice was about drug, uh, narco drug dealing in Miami, only in the same way as Animal Farm was about um, was about horses and pigs on a deeper way it was saying to 15 year old boys this is how you should be in the world which is always be yourself whether you're going on a date or you are going to take down a narco kingpin in a massive shootout on the edge of town wear the same thing there's no need to put kevlar on why would you do that why would you put why would you put protective headgear on when you can wear a periwinkle t-shirt with a uh, a jacket with shoulder pads your sleeves rolled up some linen pants multi pleats no socks 
and espadrilles. And what Don Johnson was saying, he was saying, always be yourself. Have a singular style. Don't care what anybody says to you. Stick with it and just bring yourself into the world like that. And again, I'd watch that. So I'd be like, holy bloody crap. So that's what America was to me. I was feeding myself with just like John Hughes movies. The movie Diner was mind-blowing. Cheers. I wanted to, I wanted a bar where everybody knew my name, where you walked in and people were like, Rog. And so that was everything was just like, oh, joy, wonder. Uh, it gave me courage. It gave me confidence when I needed it. It gave me um, the ability to survive um, and, and a sense of, that there could be other pathways to the one I felt trapped in. And the bizarre part is like, and this, if you were writing a movie, you'd be like, this is a bit, sounds a bit. Suddenly, one day in Liverpool in the park, I ran into a real life Chicagoan who had come to visit family, a family friend for a couple of days. And I was like, I'd never met an American my own age before. I'd met two Americans who were both lovely, but old and crazy. And they just blew my mind uh, by telling me there were 362 television channels in, in on cable in, in New Jersey. And we had like three channels in England. I couldn't even conceive of that kind of a bounty. And well, they were from Jersey, though. So you don't know if it's true or not. I do know that she had hair that was like the color I had never seen on another human being before or since. It was like this red, this <laughs> shocking red. It was like... It was genuinely, it was a me, Bob. If you're listening, you'd be about 112 now. And just congratulations on still being alive. Uh, so, so I've never met an American apart from them. I was about to meet a real life American. And I just like pounded him with all my questions. Like I wanted to know, um, you know, about how you, how the Reebok pump actually worked. Did it make you play better at sports? The Reebok pump. I had a million questions that I'd saved up. And um, we became pen pals, which uh, old li young listeners, it's what you had to do pre-internet. You'd write letters to each other, be like, Everton are cool. We did great. He wrote back and be like, Chicago Bears rule. We smashed the Cowboys. It was cool. And he'd send me like clippings and a pin on my wall. He sent me a big foam finger that said, Bears number one. I'd like walk around Liverpool. Like I would like had a Willy Wonka golden ticket. It got me beaten up once for the wearing it. It was a very bad idea. to wear. My brother was like, that's cool. Don't take it out of the house. And I didn't listen to him, and I did get beat up almost immediately. But they didn't take it, though, did they? They didn't take it when they beat you up, did they? You can take my freedom, but you can't take my big foam hand, as uh, as, Braveheart, <laughs> as Braveheart would say. <laughs> but, yeah, I did. I had the cra I had the crap kicked out of me, but like I was hugging the hand as if it was like like. I was like, I wasn't even like not in the face. I was like, smash me in the face. But for God's sake, lads, just leave my home foam hand. Um, I can't get blood out of a foam hand, by the way. <laughs> I can't. I'm rubbed and rubbed. Couldn't get the blood out. So I haven't thought about that in a long time, by the way. The, my older brother's always right. He's like, whatever I brought back from America, he's always like, those are great rollerblades. They're great. Use them in the house, but never go out on the street. Someone will just drive a car right into your <laughs> um, So I got, I sent me like the Super Bowl shuffle single. And, I, you know, I was probably the only person in England to have that and to play that. Every boast, every everything was genuinely amazing. And uh, at the end of the summer, 
this is what you want me to get to. This is now we're now 58 minutes into the podcast, and I'm getting to where I need to get to. Hey, it's not it's not a long distance bill anymore. We can do that in my parents' bedroom. But this is where Benetti wants me to get to. You um he invited me over for the summer. He's like, I was 15. He's like, when do you come over? Spend the summer in the northern suburbs with me. I live in Northbrook. We'll hang out on Glencoe Beach. And I was like, holy crap. I was like, I arrived and it was like. I have gone through the looking glass. I'm now in a John Hughes movie in which I am the star. And the question was, was I going to be Cameron? Was I going to be Duckman? Was I going to be Ferris Bueller? Was I going to be Judge Reinhold? What what role was I going to be? And I had the whole summer to work it out. And that's what took me to the White Sox, Jason. So what what was your first White Sox experience, Raj? When, when did you first get to Comiskey? But the summer was like when Ferris Bueller's Day Off came out, I didn't find it funny at all. It was like a documentary of my state. Like I, everything in there was what we like Art Institute of Chicago, going up the Sears Tower, going to the, the bleachers and necking down beers at the Cubs. That was amazing. But thank God, five days before we first went to Wrigley Field, I went to Comiskey Park, old Comiskey. And thank God, thank God I went there first because, yeah, that's it. It was Detroit Tigers. That's me wearing a very, very snug pair of shorts. And we went to old Comiskey. Look how beautiful Comiskey looks. Huh? And um, it was amazing. I'd never seen anything like it. Harold Baines, um, just a stunning athlete to watch live and in person. But more than anything, the game which just immediately seemed to me to be like chess with chewing tobacco was just uh, emotionally and intellectually captivating. And I just, I mean, I essentially bought a White Sox hat. I always love this outfit the most, by the way. Um, I wish they'd do more with this. I think it's amazing, the old uh, 80s logo. And that was it. I was completely and utterly captivated. So by the time we did go to Wrigley Field, I enjoyed it. They were playing uh, the Mets. They're playing Mookie Wilson's Mets, and the Bleachers just spent the whole game just Mookie, Mookie. But I was already committed. It had no effect on me. And I said to them, "We just got to. Can we go back to Old Comiskey tomorrow?" And we did. We went back to the wow. White Sox, and and from that point on, I was utterly smitten. Roger, we're the same age, um, so we're at fifty, which is a big number. It's an interesting number, and we can talk about that later. But my experience was very similar to yours. I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Michigan. And so all of the pop culture references that you made applied to me. But I grew up in the I grew up in the US, but it all felt unreachable and it felt like I really it was it was this other place, right? And so I think you and I are lucky. Our generation is very fortunate to have grown up in that era where stuff felt unreachable. And I don't know if I have a 20-year-old son if he's going to be able to experience that because everything is reachable. So I wanted to ask you this. Was the fact that it felt unreachable the biggest part of what drew you to that stuff? Because for me, as I look back now, and I can do YouTube and I can find all the stuff that you're talking about, and it still kind of makes me smile kind of being 12 and 13 again, but it doesn't resonate now like it did then because this was this thing where if you found it at the moment, it was like, I found it, it's mine. And now it belongs to everybody, right? 
<laughs> there's, there's a bit in my book like I love music I come from Liverpool football and music were the two things we had soccer and music and um and there's a from a very early age I was obsessed with music and I, I probably am one of the only human beings that brought culture clubs to uh their first two singles their first one I still love it but it, it must have sold about 12 copies and then their third single, I think, blew up. Like, do you really want to hurt me? It was just massive, massive global smash. And they were on English television singing it. They were number one in the charts. And my mum, God bless her, I remember she's like, oh, your favorite band. Uh, they're, they're number one. This is amazing. And I, I teared up. And she's like, why are you crying? And I was like, they're not my culture club anymore. They're the world's culture club. And I lost interest in them overnight. So that thing, like the the desire to have something that's specific to you. And when I started to listen, I write about this in the book, when I started to listen to American music, which I did obsessively, um, thanks to Rolling Stone, I could easily order the music to come over, these bands, Replacements, Husker Do, uh, Run uh, DMC, uh, Public Enemy, uh, KRS-One. Like no one else was listening to them. I think that was it. You're right. You want to feel different to other human beings when you're in that situation. Put some distance in. And what's been interesting, Lem, is when I put this book out in preparing the the the, the when you do the blurbs process for a book, it's somewhat insane. You just like you just like asking people, who, and yet ultimately I try to ask people who I love, revere, and admire. And I asked Mina Kimes, the NFL analyst on ESPN. And she got right back to me and she's like, oh, my God, you grew up in Liverpool, obsessed with Chicago. I was like, yeah. She said, I grew up in America and I was obsessed with, I think it was Manchester. It was like the Smiths, the Cure. You know, so many, I've had thousands of Americans say, I dreamt of moving outside of Manchester. Morrissey grew up in Salford. I wanted to live it. I'm like, oh, my God, you dodged a bullet. But what I've realized is, Len, that it's, my book is deeply specific. It's like my story. Um, in all of its awkward, um, dark, joyous hilarity. Um, but what I've realized is there's a universal um, mechanism that you have in that 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 age range where you will yourself to be somewhere different, an alternative you, where you, you're able to try on new identities. And I love that. I love that there's thousands of Americans, young Americans who are like, yeah, cool, London sounds amazing, or Berlin sounds amazing, or Sydney. Um, and for me, the difference is I acted upon it. Um, I mean, I had dreams. They were they were more than dreams to me. They were deeply – like, I, I knew Don Johnson, even though – I mean, I've now met – God love Don Johnson. But back then, you're right, he was so far away. Like, And when I got invited to go to Chicago, it was. it was a, Manchester was far away to me, Len. Manchester was half an hour away. And whenever we went there, it felt like I was in a Star Wars cantina. I was like, I don't understand this place. It's very different to home. I'd like to go back now, please. And London, like it was. If people moved to London, it was like they disappeared through a hole in time. Yeah. Like you would never see I was sad. You'd never see them again. So Chicago, it was... When I got invited over, it was insane. Um, and you're right that uh, when we grew up, I mean, Len, I don't know you, uh, but what you've just said is absolutely true. You know, I, I didn't grow up around writers or broadcasters or, you know, you, you took the end product of everything. You watch TV, you know, you watch the White Sox, you, you, you watch Jason Benetti. You didn't know Jason Benetti. 
Um, you dodged a bullet. Oh, gorgeous. Jay Simonetti, uh, uh, all I'm trying to do is not pay tribute to you as one of the great human beings, never mind broadcasters, but you bring so much joy. And I'm going to go off on this jag because I genuinely adore and revere you. And I've been told not to mention Stoney because I know that this is going to make his head swell. But God, I adore that man because when I, when I came over, he was a god. He was a, like... I remember Stoney in his many iterations, and to be with him is incredible. But going back to Len's point, like you didn't know but books, you didn't write books, you you didn't really even read them unless you were weird. But they were available. But like you didn't know authors, you didn't know you weren't didn't know editors, you weren't making television. It was just like television was something you turned on and then you sat down and you watched it, and so everything was utterly, utterly remote, and you were just a passive consumer of everything, Len. It, well, it, you know, if you and I had met one of the actors, one of the women in one of the Duran Duran videos, like that would have been the highlight of our life, right? Oh, man. Like some I would, I, some I would person. Yeah. I would have yeah. shut that with and then, like, if Kelly LeBrock walked in to 50 year old Rog, <laughs> that wouldn't be the highlight of my life. I would just be like, I would have, like, quickly, I would have, like, completely and utterly backed away. I would have been, like, uh, in Wayne's world, I would have just been, like, backing off completely and. Uh, <laughs> Tell you, this is not. I uh, yes, I wouldn't know what to do to be honest. Like. So, so what's it like now? You host a podcast and a wonderful, rollicking podcast with one of the great game show creators of all time. You now know creators of things. Yeah, I mean, um, poof. what's it like now? I I like to work. I work very hard and. Um, I, now I focus on 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 doing the work and trying to bring joy to as many people as possible and make meaning with as many people as possible. So it's I, I don't think about I never think about um, that transition to be honest. I'm very um, I like to sit in my studio here. I like to work, and that's what I focus on. The other stuff, like being number one in the New York Times bestseller list, to me that's just like a relief. Everyone's like, celebrate, be happy. I'm like, I don't feel any happiness. I'm just like immediately onto the next thing now. What's the, what's not pleasing me? What do I need to attend to? What do I need to grow? So achievements, I don't really, I don't really think about. I do think about like the, we're, we're very blessed to. Have, I mean, on our show, we did is like Aaron Rodgers, JJ Watt, uh, Jason Isbell, DeAndre Hopkins, uh, John Oliver. These are the like our 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 guys and um what i focus on with them is more just trying to make that a deeply meaningful interaction that can bring joy and hopefully wisdom to a young leader to our young uh, listenership but your point len is that the chicago month i spent there was where i did meet the bears like meeting the actual bears um which also didn't feel trippy it just felt almost normal um and wonderful and it was just a quirk of fate i got there had this incredible summer and i write about this in the book as a life-changing experience the one thing that pissed me off about being in chicago was i'd gone there to see the bears you know i imagined watching practice maybe mike dicker calling me over and being like hey would you like to you know just walk through some plays maybe hold my cigar kid here do you want me to um I had I had fantasies of what it would be like, and I got there, and bloody hell, blew me down. If the Bears had not picked up and actually gone to London to play in the first ever game there in Wembley against the Dallas Cowboys, the American Bowl, so I got to bloody Chicago, and my heroes 
over where I was. We merely swapped places. And more than anything, they seem to be having a bloody good time, which pissed me off. Incredible. <laughs> they're, like, they're like, oh, Ed Two Tall Jones and Richard Dent are at Buckingham Palace. I'm like, oh, God, sod the queen. And they were having a great time. And then the, 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 I said this on, on the ESPN podcast. They, Walter Payton hung out with Phil Collins, who I hate. But I've never hated him more than in that moment when Phil Collins and Walt Payton were just yucking it up in the park. And it was in Regent's Park. And I I cried that night. I was just like, I felt like, you know, fate. Why me? God, why? Jonah in the whale. The bears are there. And so I watched, I watched the game, the American Bolt. And um, I, I took great pleasure because I was a very sick, awful person that it rained really heavily. So everyone who went got really soaked. And I was sitting there pissed off. And then the broadcaster at the end goes, and the Chicago Bears will be returning right round after the game to get back to uh, training for the preseason. And I was like, what did he just say? And they were like, he said the Bears are coming right back tonight. And I said, we've got to go there. We've got to go. We've got to go to O'Hare. We've got to meet them. And God love, again, Americans, amazing, because my my hosts were like, sure, as if it was the most normal thing in the world to say, yeah, let's get up at 3 a.m. and drive to O'Hare and hang out in the lobby for hours, and maybe they'll come, maybe they won't. But they did. They rolled through at 4 a.m. Mike Ditka was the first one out the doors with his cigar in international arrivals, told me to piss off. Uh, He goes, go to bed, kids, was his words of welcome. These men are your heroes. Leave them alone. And I had a little camera and I just kept flashing it in his face. <laughs> um, and then and then Walter Payton came out. And um, actually, Jimbo Covert was next out. And he had a pair of Ray-Bans on. I've got this great photograph of, I just, he goes, he looks at me, he just goes, fuck off. Can I say that? And he, he goes, fuck off. And I just flashed the camera in his face. And the look on his face is just like, I'm going to tear this 14-year-old, 15-year-old's head off if I can get away with this. And then Walter Payton came out. And I got to hang out with him, and he lived up to his nickname, Sweetness. I write about that in the book, uh, the story of that interaction, which was really quite amazing. Uh, But then William Refrigerator Perry was last out. He had an entourage. They're all carrying huge bags, but they all made them look tiny. They were that enormous. And he had all the time in the world. He was just loving life in that moment. And everyone else just wanted it. It was 4 a.m., just wanted to get in the car, go home, wherever they were headed. William Perry just loving it. You know, news cameras around him, Sir Carnival character. And I walked up to him and he put his arm around me, his giant, giant arm, and he leant into my ear and he goes, Hey, kid, dream big dreams. I did and you can too, which you both work in sports. And we all now know is an amalgam of every cliche any athlete says when they speak to a young kid that they want to get the hell away from. (laughs) But, But I was just like, oh, my God. William Perry's telling me to dream about about moving to America and to do it, and I'm going to. And so it was William Perry um, who ultimately really was the pivotal point that made me stop just talking about America, thinking about America, pretending about America, but be a man of action, be a person that actually does what they talk about. And that's that's how I ended up on your podcast. Roger, I... I have this overwhelming question that keeps coming to me in different forms as I read your book, and I'd love to know your answer from your heart to it. What is a hero? I'm trying not to say stony. 
They've got his. I've got his baseball up there. Look, you can see. Where is it? Is it the right direction? Oh, it's the right. one. The one you you got from him when we were here. Can you see it there? There. I'm bringing it there. This. Nice. So right up there, from the right, you've got Sandy Koufax. Middle one, Hank Greenberg. Oh, yeah. And on this one, oh, look at that, Stony. The Jewish baseball greats. He says, yes, exactly. And he signed it. God love him. He signed it. Oh, Steve Stone, one of two Jewish Cy Youngs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but you don't want me to say Stoney. Um, so what is a hero? You know, a hero is, um, to me, um, is, I mean, I've, I've, I, in life in general, I value tenacity um at this stage in my life so human tenacity um is the greatest thing but in my book i mean a hero is deeply subjective and obviously they all end up having clay feet that's just the process of life but it's the person in that moment the man or woman that gives you the sustenance that you need to be inspired in your own context and um and almost all of mine i mean the whole bloody book is about them and I've met lots of them now, and I'll be candid, it's always hilarious. Don't meet them, never, never meet them, leave them as for what they are. Um, in that fleeting moment of joy and naivete and wonder and power. But a hero is somebody in that hour when you are drowning, and we all are in life. Everybody has everybody has dark life is challenging. It's why I love being a White Sox fan and an Everton fan and a Chicago Bears fan, they're all so bloody similar is that, and this is why sports is the greatest human theater, is life is challenging. It's full of darkness. There's so many problems. Um, heroes are, when you need them, they inspire you, they motivate you, they give you direction, they give you a sense of purpose, a sense of belief, sense of courage when you need it. And I mean, I love the Chicago White Sox because Ultimately, they teach you life is challenging when you do have happy moments, as we are sharing now. This podcast would be a lot darker if it was two, three seasons ago. When you do have happy moments, savor them. Don't take them for granted. Dance as if you're at your own kid's wedding. And that's what life and about sports and also Chicago White Sox fandom is all about. I want to follow up on that because... You're so right about how fleeting everything is. When your team is bad, you cannot envision them being good. And when your team is really good, you cannot fathom them being really bad. And then invariably within like a year and a half, you're like, I don't even recognize this team on other side of it, either side of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Life can be that way too, right? If we were talking uh, 16 months ago, pre-pandemic, you'd have been, right? You, this would have been a different conversation probably. And all of a sudden, the world flipped in like a month. So sports absolutely represent life in that regard. It's why I love players like Joey Cora, who just like take every minute, laugh at it, but also bring always a hundred. That, that athlete, the one who never takes it for granted that they've made the big leagues, that they are playing, they're always going to bring 100%. They're always fighting for their place. They never... Uh, rest, but they also bring a joy of the game. They've never lost that that joviality. That 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 player who who takes to the field um, for the first time 
um, in the afternoon with the same joy that you can imagine they took to the field as a 9, 10, 11-year-old. That's that's the kind of athlete um, that I always love. So, uh, first of all, have you met Joey Cora? Um, you know, I've never met Joey Cora. I'm not sure I, I would want to meet Joey Cora. The Joey Cora in my imagination, I'm sure he's an amazing human being, but the Joey Cora in my imagination is so bloody cool. I, I, there could be nobody better. You are marked as Joey Cora in this chat. You made your name Joey Cora for this. Yeah. I have, I have all Joey Cora's baseball cards in my desk somewhere here too. Yeah. That's amazing. I, As I was reading about your school time when you were growing up and you hated rugby, well, maybe not hated, but uh, engaged in being as close to the pile as you could without actually being engaging with the pile. Yeah. Um, I thought about the juxtaposition of you not loving that part of your schooling and then having all of these sports heroes. What is that? The sports is how you make sense of the world. Or I do anyway. I always laugh that um, you know, sports allows me, many millions of people, to feel emotion, uh, joy, misery, defeat, victory, hope, despair. So many people feel in real life, but I'm dead to inside. So growing up in Liverpool, really, there was not a lot. But my God, our football teams, Everton and Liverpool, were the best in Europe at the time. It was how we announced ourselves to the world. You would travel with that team to Europe. And that was how we were known. Known and feared, to be honest. Music and, and football were, were both of those things. So sports was was just a, a connective tissue. I mean, it's not changed for me. Sports is how I understand human emotion, how I understand human decision-making, how I understand human motivation. It's the greatest human theater uh, played out live. It's an incredible spectacle, and particularly in lockdown. I mean, watching you guys broadcast, I mean, like Gilito's uh, perfect game. I mean, that was a good example. Moments like that, when we were all trapped, we were all locked down, particularly here in New York, just stuck. And those sporting moments allowed us to connect, no matter how locked down we were at different stages, sports allowed us to feel like we were connected to the world in the, in sharing those incredible, incredible emotions. So you were broadcasting that, um, but we were, through you, we were just all, we felt so alive, even though we were utterly trapped. And that that's... Um, so the playing of sports, I mean, I played a lot of football, soccer. The rugby was just for, it was just, it was just a different mentality in a very dark time. <laughs> but, but, um, but the, um, but sports, what sports are, it's how I can really connect to humanity. Hey, I, I, I got to go back to Joey Cora for a second. Um, based on what you said earlier, you really wouldn't want to meet Joey Cora or, would you want to meet Joey Cora? No, I, you know what? I would love to meet Joey Cora. I, do, I want to thank him for the joy that he gave me as a um, as a kid. And the, when I moved to Chicago and I obsessed about that White Sox team, you know, the great teams in 94, the 94 team, that pitching roster, 95 team, um, just just incredible, incredible athletes, incredible belief, just proper Chicago White Sox to be so good at the worst possible time to be 
So good. That was bloody heartbreaking. And those just those epic, they seem like a battle between light and darkness with the, the Cleveland Indians and Albert Bell and all that crap. But um, I mean, it was epic, epic times. And uh, I would thank him for just the incredible joy um, that he gave me. But I should say this, when I came to MB, last time I came to Chicago or the time before, which is always the joy of my year, and I'm about to come back in the end of July, I hope. Um, the 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 NBC local affiliate, I did a hit there, and I talked about my love of Joey Cora, and just randomly, one of the producers, bizarrely, had under his desk, I think for years under his desk, had a signed Joey Cora White Sox jersey, which he pulled out, like, covered in, like, the debris of having been under his desk for a prolonged period. It's like an archaeological find. How you know, <laughs> when they when they find something from the biblical era and they find it in the cave and they're like, what is this? We must dust it off first. And um and he gave it to me and it now hangs um in um in one of my studio in in, in my um in my basement with um I have a Lionel Messi signed jersey. I have a Carly Lloyd signed jersey two of the greatest players that ever played the game. I have a Joey Cora uh, signed jersey, and they they belong together. Those three, Joey Cora to me, in my imagination, belongs in the in the Lionel Messi goatee ether. Jason, you know, in September when the Pir- Pirates, right? Third base coach? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. when they come to our ballpark, I mean, you got to set up like a video chat or something with Roger. We have to. We have that's, to. That's going have to happen. To. I yeah. mean, he's just, he's, uh, he is, I, I do look to my athletes to your hero point. I love how I like to project upon them. Clearly. I have a dog. We adopted a bloody dog in pandemic. I can't stand it. It's like a, it's like, I'm like the opposite of a little dog person. And it's deeply humiliating to be seen out with a tiny, it's like a white tiny dog. I'm not even sure what kind it is. It's just, it's just not my thing at all. But it's we named after my favorite ever footballer, Tony Hibbert, who played for Everton forever. He wasn't very good. He's happier if he was being honest. He was happier fishing. He's always on the front cover of Angler's Monthly with a huge trout. But my God, when he when he played, he tried his bloody hardest. Every he wasn't. He'd always, uh, you know, often in videos, he was always being posterized, the equivalent of. But my God, he always bounced back. He always gave his all. He tried his bloody hardest. And I've named my dog after him. It's what it's how if you approach life like Joey Cora, if you approach life like Tony Hibbert. Ultimately, um, like you're giving all you can, and that's really to me what it's all about. Where are we going with this? I'm taking you to some funny places. Keep I, I want to know where your grasp of language comes from, Roger. Uh, God, can you be more specific, Benetti? You're like you're <laughs> that's, like the... that's that's like that's like um, that's genuinely like Tom Brady saying to. Uh, Mitch Trubisky, I want to know where you learned to throw the football. You're, 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 you're the most articulate human being in the world. It's like I'm, I'm the Mitch Trubisky in this example. That is not okay. true. To it's me, true. you are the you're the Bill Walton of Liverpool in so many ways because Ooh. your boundless curiosity, but your way with vivid description is truly enlivening to be around. And so I would like to know, in an effort to maximize my next 30 years on this planet, how I get there, Roger. Benetta, you are so there and you have so surpassed it in every way. I mean, I don't know how to answer the question. Um, it's, a funny, it's a funny thing to be trapped in my brain. I can tell you this, that um, 
I don't. I try not, for a variety of different reasons, to take anything for granted ever. And it's just genuinely my approach to life. I'm always fully aware that life is short, um, that everything is in short supply, and every minute we should. Uh, I don't like to waste any minute, and I never like to take anything for granted. It's part of the reason I love sports. I always believe, like, I'm always like, make memories while you can. Like, England are about to play in the Euros final. And if they win, unbelievable. If they lose, it is what it is. But just, like, make memories, savor this, the anticipation, the experience. You'll always remember, whoever's watching, if they care about the, where you were when you watched this game. And that approach to life, I think, is really – my kids are so bored of me saying – they always say, yes, Dad, make memories while you can – but I do think it's um, it's an important thing, and as a result of that, you like you are. I'm, I'm trying to always like to chat to you. Is when we met at the ballpark when I last came to throw out a truly terrible pitch um, <laughs> against the White Sox. My God, by the way, Lucas Giolito, what an incredible, tenacious human being that is. Yeah. But um, when I last came, you, like you approach life like that also. The most generous human being I know. That an inter- you cannot leave an interaction with Jason Benetti without being like, oh my God, I've just come across the most generous human being who understands how much of a joy it is to do what he does and doesn't take it for granted. So I'm giving you a very broad answer. I don't know how I am like this. I don't know what has happened. Um, I tried to write a book about it. If it didn't quite get there, then that's the reality. But it is about, and you you share this, Jason Benetti, about not taking anything uh, for granted. And that's why I admire about you, to be honest. Well, thank you. That's that's very kind of you, Raj. I um, I actually have been confronted in recent days with my own mortality because I used to play the uh, FIFA Nintendo 64 World Cup game and I used Denmark quite a bit. And Peter Schmeichel was fantastic in goal. And I've been told in recent days by a friend of mine that Peter Schmeichel's son is now an outstanding goalkeeper. And I feel very old, Raj. Yeah, it's the Tatis. It's the Guerrero effect, you know. It's, he is the, he's the, God, Vlad Guerrero, what a player he was back in the day with no gloves, just watching him gun that ball. That was genuinely, I just arrived in America. That was a, that was a thrilling memory in every single regard. It is, it's the Guerrero cycle. Life is just, we're all on the conveyor belt of life, Benetti. We're all moving along, just shuffling on the conveyor belt of life. And I think the most important thing is to recognize it and not take it for granted and to, to fill up those days um, with meaning and joy and to make memories. And so many of my memories have come from watching the White Sox, of being in the ballpark, um, of the endless hope and the shattered hope of being a White Sox fan. And then when you have seasons like this, it just feels just feels amazing. It feels surreal. It feels totally um I mean I, I arrived in Chicago when Tony La Russa had just been, should we say, um uh separated from the White Sox. <laughs> well, how do we pronounce that now? Um he got fired. He got he was uh, fired. He got he got he got um he had left the 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 SS Larusa had left the White Sox port. Yeah, so he, <laughs> I was there like I thought Jim Fregosi is just one of the great coaches of all time. They even had a poster of in Liverpool had a poster of Jim Fregosi, um, just like oh my god. Um, and now Tony Larusa is back. It's like it's it, I don't know what to make of it all. It's been like that is, it's like a weird and wonderful thing. I've got I don't know how it like. This is a man who's used to 
leading in a different era, a more a golden era of like radio and um, and um, just a more innocent time. Like the US had just won the war. It's just like <laughs> like there was just the golden period, the 1950s. Larusa is a great young manager. I mean, it's like it is almost like getting Ted Williams out of his cryogenic chamber and being like, go for it, Ted. You can manage the White Sox. We think you've still got it in him. But somehow, I, I don't know, and I, you can't tell me because I shouldn't be saying any of this, but you, I don't know if it's happened because of him or despite of him or or somewhere, the interaction between the two, but it's been magic to watch. Well, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you a quick, a John quick Hughes, story. Let me, let me just say this yeah. real fast. <laughs> I feel like there's a John Hughes film in there. Yeah, I, I think they've already made it with uh, Brendan Fraser coming out of uh, uh, a freezer and being like, that, that's, it, that's it. They get Brendan Fraser to play Tony Larusa coming back from the prehistoric age and the well, papers in shape. As, as, as the older uh, broadcaster in this uh, group here, um, I've had the moment where I've been with Tony and with one of our players, and I've said, you, 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 know, you know, when Tony came up to the major leagues in 1963, with the Kansas City Athletics, I don't know if this player actually knew that the Athletics were in Kansas City before they were in Oakland. I said the first 14 games he played, he didn't hit. He came in as a pinch runner or for defense. And the player was like, really? And it's amazing to me because I think of, again, the generation we're from. I find that fascinating. Like I know everything about Tony's playing it's, career and his managerial career. Guys today don't know anything about it. He's just their manager. And so I like making those connections and letting a guy know like, hey, he did this 60 some years ago and this is how it started. And they're all like, wow, it's amazing. Yeah, but it is tough because like I, I interview a lot of Premier League managers or spend time with them. And the older ones, they do. They say, you know, in my day, the players would get on their bus. They, they Tony doesn't do that. Tony doesn't do that. I do it to, to, to like force it, and the players are, are, are no, no, into no, no, it. No, but the, the, the big difference is, so for instance, in the olden days, players traveling, card games break out immediately. Now the players get yeah. traveling, they're immediately headphones on, they are immediately yeah. iPhone-related, and they're separate. And one of the hardest challenges for older managers in the Premier yeah, AirPods, one of the hardest problems for, uh, and I think about this in LaRusso a lot, in the Premier League, is that the guys that played the game are used to squad building and building a club culture based on togetherness. You know, I get the guys together. We go out for dinner where there was this crew. We play cards. We do whatever. God knows what. But like now, so much of the the off the field thing is is Xbox related and uh, an iPhone related. And a lot of the managers will admit that it's very, very difficult for them to adapt to that new reality. And I just wonder how... Um, how Tony um, handles that in every bloody single way. But, um, I mean, I, I tell you, I, Rick Hahn, I do admire greatly. He just seems like a fascinating and uh, and really emotionally intelligent uh, leader. So, God love in Rick Hahn, we trust. Yeah, we had, we had Rick on the first episode of this. And when he found out that you were going to be on later... He, um, I think he felt very badly that that he was going to get upstaged by the wonder that is Roger Bennett. I, I, thought, I thought you were going to tell me he has to be taken off the. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Please make sure my name is not associated with anybody. If I if I was a punchline assassin and I was hunting punchlines, I would have gone there. Oh, but not today, right? Oh my God, you're beautiful. I do love listening to that man speak, and I get the feeling Rick Hon, you know him and I don't, but I get the feeling Rick Hon can talk about a lot of things. Um, 
in life baseball obviously please god tell me you can talk about baseball but i get the feeling you can talk you can talk about many rick on seems to be the kind of gentleman that could hold court on many many opinions absolutely even though even though he claims not to have any hobbies which i don't buy uh this has been lingering in my mind since you were at the ballpark and since we're opening up concession stands and it's a hundred percent capacity and there's that camaraderie in the ballpark again if we were going to have a Roger Bennett food item like the Larry David sandwich in Curb Your Enthusiasm, what would the Roger Bennett food item be at Guaranteed Rate Fields Concessions? I, I, I don't think that that would be like the Chicago is the greatest. Food. When I came to Chicago that summer when I was 15 and I just inhaled pecan pizza. I, <laughs> I, I mean, just my God, I felt like between the top layer and the bottom crust just everything was contained within it the meaning of life was jammed in there somewhere carson carson's ribs <laughs> my god when they put that little bib on you before you ate i was just like you know just fuck bury me in one of these um and um you know ed the bevick shout out to the northern suburbs people who grew up there will probably remember that place it just felt like the most dazzling exciting and dangerous diner i mean strawberry malted for days so what i'm saying is i like, you know, I am not worthy when Chicago again, when Chicago has so many food offerings of its own to have a Roger Bennett, you know, Manny's. Oh, my God. I mean, just like so many joys of my life in Chicago are so deeply bloody culinary to uh, to have a Roger Bennett would seem to lower. It would just lower the the quality of the offerings. And I would not um, I wouldn't advise it. I'm, I'm being told in my earpiece. Yes, I'm being told. Yes, the 2021 Self-Deprecation Award goes to Roger Bennett. Oh, God. Congratulations. You know, uh, name something after Studs Terkel. Name something after true Chicago greats. But uh-huh. I am so I am so blessed to have been to have Chicago in my life. I'm so bloody lucky to have Chicago in my life. I, I've left that city. There's not a day I don't wake up and think about that place and romanticize it. You know, I, I came here not knowing anybody. I have no family. I just didn't know. I just like, looked at a map. I was like, my name's Roger. There's a place called Roger's Park. Let me go and move there. And uh, it was amazing. It was amazing. East Roger's Park. Hello to everyone in that beautiful neighborhood. And it was the most glorious and wonderful um, experience. So to have I also to have completed my family's three generation story, maybe 80 years after my great grandfather imagined it, is deeply and profoundly meaningful. I'm blessed to have Chicago in my life, in my persona. I do consider myself to be, I mean, Liverpool's deeply important to me. It's an incredible city. Um, I, 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 my identity was really forged in reality once I moved to Chicago in, in every way. And um, so I'm telling you in a little more seriously than your, your flip question uh, thought it would lead to, but like, I don't muck with that stuff. There's so many incredible Chicago bluesmen and thinkers and politicians and writers and all that crap that to take a a fake son like me and to even I'm take, look how seriously I'm taking your funny question. <laughs> well, I like that. I like that I've asked you a couple serious questions and you've been flip. And then I asked you a flippant question and you went all macabre on me. Yeah, I, I'm just like all the Chicago. My whole experience is now flickering through my brain, and I'm just like, oh my god, it's like a huge weight. I can't, 
Um, I can't load. So if you hadn't stopped me in that moment, I would have gone on for about another 40 minutes. Focus <laughs> me. Just, just do me a favor. Just ask me really hard questions. Stop with the flip ones and then we'll get this over quickly. <laughs> Roger, the last thing I have is you've been sitting here watching you with your Waffle House sweatshirt on. And one of the things I missed about traveling during the pandemic was this Waffle House in Cincinnati. I go there after every game. We played the Reds and I miss it dearly. And I cannot wait to get back to a Waffle House. <laughs> There's no question there, so I'm not going to add anything. But no, I, I didn't. It wasn't a question. I just had to throw that out there. I, I, I write in the beginning of my book how being in America is the joy of my life, the honor of my life. It's a deeply complicated nation, a deeply complicated time. Um, you know, the front epigraph of my book is the the great American poet Langston Hughes. Uh, the line, so let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be. And so much of my life has been informed by the American idea. I have a wife and four kids who are all American. I'm bringing some of them to the White Sox game at the end of July, and I can't wait. It's deeply meaningful. I'm so blessed. But the American idea, mine, was forged as a young kid, a naive uh, big dreaming kid, obviously very different to the American reality. And I do, I think all of us um, want to commit ourselves to closing the gap between the reality and the, uh, and, and the idea. But having said that, it is the joy of my life to be here through my job, like your guy's job. I get to travel all over America. I love Nashville. I love Charlottesville. I love all the villes. I love getting off into Nashville and like going right from the airport to Prince's Hot Chicken and getting the extra, extra, extra hot wings. I love going to Minnesota and and getting going to Matt's Bar and having a Juicy Lucy. I just love each and everything. I never take it for granted. And you're right, the Waffle House is – I mean, I, I wear this a lot. I have a Waffle House um, um, sign up behind my desk. It's like a totem of just the simple joys of America, the great pleasures that many of us have had. I got asked by Waffle House to record a, a video message for their staff during COVID because they're the hardest working cast of characters. They're always there. Everyone knows even in hurricanes, the Waffle Houses are open. And it was like a genuine joy just to speak to them and tell them what I think about when I think of Waffle House and the times I've had there and the memories that I've made and that's ultimately life. Waffle House, Chicago White Sox, life, joy, just enjoying every single bloody thing and always have it smothered and covered. <laughs> we we hope to see you at the parade this year, Raj. Oh, mate, I will be there. I think the end of July, Benetti, I'm warning you, I'm coming. Um, so I will, please, God, it's just genuinely, when I do come to Chicago and knowing that I came as a big dreaming 15-year-old and now I get to come back and um, and be there and, and hang out with you all, again, that's something I never take for granted. It's, it's just a genuine joy of America for me. So to you, thank you to all of you in your, your broadcast team. I hope you know how much pleasure you have given so many of us around the country who follow the White Sox day in, day out during lockdown, when no one was allowed at the ballpark, when people went out allowed out their house, you guys were there covering the game, bringing it to us, bringing joy, bringing feelings, bringing a sense of wonder and anticipation that is, that is a White Sox game. So thank you, guys. Roger Bennett, thank you so much. And I hope when you're in town, we can buy you a pizza. Oh, mate, just one. <laughs> Roger Bennett, check out his book, Reborn in the USA. 
number one on the New York Times list. I know you don't want to celebrate it, but I'm going to celebrate for you. Mate, I think I've killed the publishing industry, Benetti. Had a good, had a good, had a good run. When, when, when were printing presses invented? Like 1450. They had a good run. Hey, Gutenberg's rolling over somewhere. <laughs> It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.